0: We continue our study in the Sermon on the Mount. And if you've got your Bibles, turn to Matthew 5. As we continue to look at the Beatitudes section of the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, the last two weeks, we've looked at the first four Beatitudes. Today, we're gonna look at Beatitude uh, 5 and 6 from uh, Matthew 5, 7, and 8. Before I get into the text, there's two things I'd like to do to maybe help you and kind of sort of prepare us, continue to prepare us for understanding rightly uh, this incredible sermon that Jesus uh, preaches and that we are looking at. The first thing I want to give you is I want to give you five sort of underlying realities of this sermon that are really important to keep in mind. Might want to jot these down. I might put them up on uh, a blog here this week. But the, the first thing you need to understand is when Jesus, particularly in the Beatitudes, but all the way through the Sermon on the Mount, he is giving us the foundational realities and principles of his kingdom, of what it looks like when Jesus Christ rules and reigns. That's the first. Sort of a helpful understanding as we go through this Sermon on the now. The second thing is what Jesus does, particularly in the Beatitudes, but all the, throughout the sermon, he's actually giving us a description of who we are, those of us who have put our faith and confidence in Christ alone, who we are in that kingdom. What is our identity? What is our new identity now that we have been brought from the kingdom of darkness, Colossians 1.13, and placed into the kingdom of his dear son? Thirdly, the sermon also tells us, in light of the fact that we've been brought into this new kingdom, we are supposed to live in a fundamentally different way. In a very real sense, what Jesus is saying is, you are this new person by virtue of receiving God's grace. You are this person, but you need to live more consistently with who you already are. In other words, be who you already are. That's sort of a third emphasis of the Sermon on the Mount. The fourth emphasis is really important to keep in mind is that there's two elements. There's a present uh, sort of time, sort of as we look at uh, being in, in God's kingdom here today, but we're also looking at the future when the consummation of God's kingdom completely takes place. And so sometimes in the Sermon on the Mount, it's talking about how you should live now, but oftentimes it looks forward to how the kingdom will be one day, Not only is a motivation for the vision we ought to have, but that also informs how we are to live presently, knowing that future. And lastly, if you haven't figured this out already, I don't know how to help you. Part of what the Sermon on the Mount is designed to do is to remind us that we can't follow any of this sermon apart from Jesus Christ and his enabling work by the power of the Holy Spirit. You can't do this in your own strength. You can't do this in your own power. It's impossible. That's the first sort of introductory ideas. The second thing I want to try to give you is a little bit of the structure that I think will help us understand the two Beatitudes we wanna look at this morning. There is a structure to Jesus' sermon. Now, when you read it, it it might not become obvious, and I'm not suggesting that this is the, the full extent of all of the structure that God has for us, but uh, that Jesus has for us. But this is one, I think, helpful way to look at the sermon. And it does appear that the first three Beatitudes, poor in spirit, blessed are those who mourn, blessed are the meek, are all talking about our need apart from Christ before God. All of us are poor in spirit. We, we have spiritual poverty. We can't get to God. We're spiritually bankrupt. All of us, it's sin that we need to mourn for it. Then only the spirit can help us see that, that separates us from God. And we all need to be meek, but we all are not naturally meek because we're self-absorbed. We're all a little narcissist in the making. I thought surely someone would say, amen, and then point to someone else. <laughs> All of these three elements, poor in spirit, uh, mourning for our sin, meekness, which we don't have naturally, all of it describe our human need before God. And then when you get to the fourth beatitude, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. What you get is the answer to our need. We need the righteousness of Jesus Christ. We need something outside ourselves to deal with our spiritual poverty, the sin that we need to mourn for, the, the lack of meekness and self-absorption that we all have. And so the fourth beatitude sort of gives positively. Here is the answer to those first three beatitudes and the need that we have. It's the hungering and thirst of righteousness. It's the righteousness of Christ that fills us, that satisfies us that gets us into the kingdom to begin with, but then begins to shape us into us being more consistent who we already are because of this righteousness that God has provided for us in Jesus. Now, the next three Beatitudes, certainly the two that we are looking at this morning, in a very real sense, I think, these next three Beatitudes describe how does the righteousness of Christ How does the filling that we get from his righteousness, how should that impact us? How should that change us? So, blessed are the merciful, blessed are the pure in heart, blessed are the peacemakers. And I think each of these three Beatitudes map on in order to the first three Beatitudes. In other words, if we really understand how poor in spirit we are, if the spirit of God opens up our hearts and minds, we see our need, our spiritual poverty, and we truly receive the righteousness from Christ, we will be people who will be massively merciful to other people because we see the mercy that God gave us. And if we are people who mourn for our sin, which is we have to have that happen by the spirit that, that launches us into the kingdom because we look to Christ... If we truly understood the nature of sin, we would then want to purify our hearts and have undivided hearts before God. And lastly, if we know how to, to be meek and, and get rid of the self absorption that we all struggle with and begin to put other people's interests ahead of ourselves, then we can be with that, the next beatitude you can be a peacemaker. But you're not going to be a good peacemaker if you're not meek, and you're not gonna be able to st- strive by the power of the Holy Spirit to be, have an undivided heart if you don't see the nature of sin, and you're gonna have a really hard time being merciful to other people if you don't understand how poor in spirit you really were and how much mercy God poured out in your life. You'll never turn around and give someone else mercy unless you see that clearly. So that gives us a little structure to dive into the two Beatitudes we want to look at. So let's look at verse seven. The first Beatitude says, blessed are the merciful for they shall receive mercy. What I would describe in this Beatitude is since God in his mercy has rescued us from our poverty of spirit, the first beatitude. We ought to pour out mercy to everyone around us. Since God, in His mercy, rescued us from our poverty of spirit, and there was nothing that we did to get out of our poverty of spirit save the death and resurrection of Christ and His mercy and grace which He poured out on us, we of all people should be merciful to everyone around. We should reflect what God has done for us and how we treat other people. just talk a little bit about what mercy means when it says, uh, blessed or grace flows to the merciful for they should receive mercy. When we're talking about being merciful, what mercy does, mercy starts with a compassion and a pity to somebody who's in misery, struggling with the consequences of sin in their life. And when a person who's merciful sees a person, has a sense of compassion and pity to that person, and then is propelled to take tangible action to help the person in their misery deal with the consequences of sin and deal with the alleviation of what sin has done to them, that's mercy. We see a tangible illustration of this in the Bible. Luke 10 records the story of the Good Samaritan. Many of you are familiar with that story. Jesus tells his story. It's the story of a guy who's going from Jerusalem down to Jericho, literally down because Jericho was, 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 was in a lower area, so sort of down the mountain, so to speak, from Jerusalem. And he's attacked by robbers. He's beaten. He's robbed. He's left for dead. And you got two religious types come by him. One's a pastor, a Levite. The other was a priest, a pastor emeritus. And they don't stop. They don't have mercy on this man. They're not, they they, apparently, they don't have that much compassion or pity, and certainly not enough compassion and mercy and pity to do anything about the situation. They've got things to do. They don't want to get involved in this mess. They don't want to sit there and maybe be a target themselves, depending on who had attacked this man. So they go around, they, uh, they, go, they, they, they don't do anything. They don't show any mercy whatsoever. And, yet, and then Jesus, oh, he's a great storyteller, talks about the good Samaritan, someone that the Jewish audience he's talking to would not have liked. Someone ethnically and religiously other was the one who stops. What what does the the story say? He had compassion on the man who was lying by the side of the road half dead. He bandages up the wounds. He provides medical care. He provides transportation, gets the hurt man to a place where he can recover. He he gives money so that the, the, the place where he's at can provide care for him. He tangibly involves himself in helping someone who's struggling with the misery of sin and doing something tangible to alleviate that in merciful, tangible actions. And that's what mercy is. And we of all people, of all the people in the world, those of us who know Christ, we know we were... We were poor in spirit. We were helpless and hopeless before God. And what did God do for us? What does the Bible say? While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. He didn't wait to get our act together. He didn't wait for us to clean up our act. He, He died for us while we were still in the mess. Why? He had mercy on us. Compassion. And then he tangibly begins to do what is necessary at great cost to himself to rescue us from the consequences of our sin by laying down his life to bring us back to himself. And when we have trusted that Jesus and we know that he's rescued us from our poverty of spirit, our spiritual bankruptcy, how can we not then go to anyone in our life, whether they're believers or whether they're outside the faith, and pour out the same kind of mercy to others, that Jesus has given us. And I think that's the rub for us, is it not? Because sometimes the perception of believers in this world is not that we're the most merciful people on the planet, oh no. Gandhi apparently has been quoted as saying, I I love your Jesus, but I don't like your Christians too much. And why is that? I think the problem is, because we've forgotten the, uh, our poverty of spirit, we've forgotten the mercy that God has given us, when we don't have a handle on that as well as we, do, we ought to, we are unable to turn around and pour out that same kind of mercy to other people. I may be attributing this to the wrong person, but Randy Alcorn is a great guy, so I'm sure it'd be okay, but... I remember him telling a story about the three surprises in heaven. The first surprise, when you get to the kingdom, the ultimate kingdom, the first surprise is there are going to be people in that kingdom that you never thought would make it. Yeah. I suspect Pastor Matt has had many, probably has had dozens of experiences like this. Oftentimes, as a pastor, you get called into somebody's hospital or hospice room or hospital room or at the house and some of the family or friends have asked you to come and speak to someone who didn't want anything to do with Jesus while they were living but now in the last hours of their life they're open to hearing from a pastor and so you go it's a privilege And I've shared the gospel a number of times with people who were atheists and agnostic, people who had no interest in following Jesus, people who led fairly colorful and reckless lives. But I'm sharing the gospel at the end of their life. And it's possible that some, and in fact, I have some indication that some of these individuals put their faith in Christ just like the thief at the cross at the last minute. They're gonna be in heaven, much to the surprise of their family and some of their friends. That's the first surprise. Because the kingdom is not a kingdom of performance. It's a kingdom of grace. There's going to be, well, there's going to be a whole lot of people in that kingdom who don't seem like they belong. There's a second surprise, and this is, will be tragic. I suspect there'll be some people that you keep looking for, and they're not there. And you're like, I can't believe it. I thought for sure they knew Christ. They came to church all the time where are they? I think that can happen. This is what keeps lots of pastors up late at night, people who come to church week after week after week, and they appear to trust Christ. But it's possible that someone could continue to come to a gospel-preaching church, give lip service to the gospel, but secretly are trusting their own goodness to get them in. They're trusting Jesus plus something else. And they're not going to be there, and that's, that'll shock you but the biggest surprise is that you'll be there. I suspect when we're worshiping the lamb, okay, Revelation five, praising Jesus, I think we maybe will see this more than we've ever seen it before. We have no earthly right to be there. We don't belong because it was sheer mercy and sheer grace. And when we lose sight of that, we find it difficult to be merciful to others. Jonathan Edwards, I can't believe this. He was 12 years old. He started working on these resolutions. And when you read some of these, you're going, he can't be 12 and then I, I realized what my resolutions would have looked like at 12. Not like this. But here's his eighth resolution. Jonathan Ezra says, I re, I'm resolved to act in all respects, both speaking and doing, as if nobody had been so vile as I, and as if I had committed the same sins or had the same infirmities and failings. And that I should be ready to confess my sin just as easily as I see the sin in other people. I mean, <laughs> Jonathan Edwards was resolved. What was he resolved to do? To understand the mercy of God, but then to begin to apply that mercy to other people in humility. I'm not better than anybody. I don't deserve to be in the kingdom. And it's all of grace and it's all of mercy, and that's how we'll treat you. problem, I think, for some of us, is that we are a lot like Javert from Les Miserables. And Javert is, is the, I guess he's the inspector, he's the sort of the policeman in the story, and he's chasing Jean Valjean, who's the hero. Jean Valjean actually receives grace understands grace and is delivered and he's out of jail. But Javert, he can't get away from his judgmental law focus. There's no mercy in him. I'm not gonna sing the song, don't worry. But in the song, stars in the musical. There was a movie made as well. It was a shell of the musical, but... Some of you cheapened yourselves, that's fine. I love you anyway. He's singing about, you know, tracking down Jean Valjean. There out in the darkness, a fugitive running, fallen from God, fallen from grace. God be my witness. I never shall yield till we come face to face. He knows his way is in the dark, but mine is the way of the Lord. Those who follow the path of the righteous shall have their reward. You know your place in the sky. You hold your course and your aim and each in your season returns and returns and it's always the same. And if you fall as Lucifer fell, you fall in flame. And so it must be, so it is written on the doorway to paradise that those who falter and those who fail must pay the price. It's committed to the law. He's committed to judgment. He doesn't understand grace, and in fact, later in the in the, in the book, uh, the book, and, and, and it, when when he when he receives grace from Jean Valjean, he, he he commits suicide. He can't even deal with it. My fear for us is that we fail to show mercy how would you tell? Well, I'll tell you this. Those who are merciful move towards hurting people with compassion and then action. Those who don't want to be merciful avoid people who are suffering. Oh, I'm sure it's happened in the atrium. Oh, there they are. My small group guy. He's always got a problem. Let's go over here. You know, you do that. You don't want to get involved. Another way we show a lack of mercy is we expect everyone who comes to faith in Christ to get their act together the day before yesterday. We have no grace it's amazing that the same Christians who've been struggling, who are part of the kingdom, have given and God has given them mercy, struggling with the same sins for 20 years, and some new believer who's struggling in the first six months of their Christian life, and we think, why can't you get your act together? I've seen this a lot. I've seen it with Alcoholics Anonymous, and again, I think it's a good place to be if you need help but i remember talking in this group of people and there was a, a person in the church who was struggling with addiction they had just come to christ a few months before they were really fighting for their sobriety but they had some relapses and one of the guys there was just just haranguing this new believer saying why can't you get your act together why did you relapse again what's wrong with you come on get your act together and finally someone in that group looked at this person and says hey uh Hey, Dave there, um, how long did it take you to get sober? Uh, we have 25 years. Yeah, he's been a believer for a few months. We do that. Let me encourage you. Let me encourage us. If we really understand how much mercy God has poured out because we were spiritually bankrupt, nothing to offer God. He does everything on our behalf and draws us to himself. How can we, having received so much mercy, not turn around and show it to someone else? That doesn't mean we coddle sin. That doesn't mean we don't say, speak the truth to somebody. But we do it with mercy. We do it with hope. We do it with grace. Not like Javert. Grace. Mercy. Moving towards hurting people. course, what does the text say here? It says, blessed are the merciful for they shall receive mercy. It's interesting how Jesus puts that in a very real sense. I think Jesus would say, if you are someone who has received this mercy and you're failing to show mercy, something's seriously wrong with your Christian life. You've lost sight of the main thing. But it also means that we've received mercy initially, but as we show mercy to other people, I think we grow in appreciation of the mercy that God has for us. Nothing can choke off your spiritual life more than saying, oh, I've got mercy, God is gracious to me, and you fail to be gracious to someone else. You're, going to start not, you're not going to be able to live real well in light of mercy unless you're showing it blessed are the merciful for they shall receive mercy also blessed are the merciful one day you're going to get the full sort of the full uh, uh, inheritance of God's mercy for you when you're around that throne in that new kingdom that's the first beatitude. let's look at the second one blessed are the pure in heart for they shall see God what I would say here, since God has dealt with our sin, sin we mourn about in the second beatitude, we ought to pursue a unified heart with God. See, so what it says, blessed are the pure in heart, I, I think a lot of us would think about that as, as talking about um, our... Um, you know, sort of our moral purity, et cetera. I'm, I think it, you know, it certainly refers to that. But I think what, what, what is much more likely, particularly because of the word pure, is it's blessed are those who have an undivided heart. Blessed are those who have a single-minded focus on Christ. This is what hungering and thirsting for righteousness, and and it fills us, what should produce in us. People whose life is oriented around his kingdom, around Christ's agenda, around his life and what he's done for us, becoming in real time what he's already made us to be to have an undivided heart. And again, this maps on, I think, to the second beatitude that talks about blessed are those who mourn for their sin, for they should be comforted, because sin at the heart of sin is not simply breaking a few commands of God. I know a lot of you think that. You think it's like a traffic ticket. I'm speeding, okay, God gets on my case, I, I repent, uh, I pay the fine, and then we move on. No, sin, the sin beneath the sin, is when we sin, what we're doing is, we're actually saying, I'm not gonna follow you, God. I'm gonna set up another God in my life, in my heart, and I'm gonna follow that God, and he's gonna be my God, or she's gonna be my God, or that pursuit's gonna be my God. It's wholesale coup has happened in your heart. And even as a believer, when you break God's command, it's not simply, oh, I I messed up, I I, I didn't obey God's command. I mean, it is that, but it's more than that. When we disobey God, we are taking God and functionally taking him off the throne of our life, putting something in his place. It's a full-scale idolatry. It's full-scale rebellion against God. That's what it is. And so when Jesus says, in light of the fact that I provided you with this righteousness from Jesus Christ, in order to live in this kingdom that I put you in, I want to see that Blessed are those who are single-minded. Blessed are those who have a unified heart. We should take a moment real quickly and look at First John chapter three. We'll see the same kind of language used. And I think it maps quite well onto this beatitude, looking at the future as well. First John three. Verses one through three. It says, see what kind of love the father has given to us that we should be called children of God. And so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Beloved, we are God's children now and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. Notice what John here is doing. He's talking about the fact that one day In in that consummated kingdom, we're going to see him as he is. We're going to see that God. We're going to see that Jesus. And we're going to be like him in every way. And then verse 3, in light of that, he says, everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. You go back to the beatitude, blessed are the pure in heart for they shall see God. This is what I think Jesus is dealing with. The more of an undivided heart you have, the clearer you can see a vision of who God is. And the more your heart is united, the less rebellion you see God clearly. But the reality is one day, if you're already in the kingdom, you will see God face to face. And since that is your destiny and will satisfy you to the fullest, why not get a head start now that you're in the kingdom, and work on that undivided—you know—that divided heart, so that you can see God more clearly. I don't know if you've thought about that. I've thought about this affair, but I, I think about it more the older I get. Say, <laughs> hazard of growing older. But I've often thought, you know, what is it going to be like to see Jesus face to face? I guarantee you what I'm not going to be thinking of, I'm not going to be thinking, wow, I wish I would have watched more football. Well, that was a mistake. No. I I don't think I'm going to think, well, I wish I would have, you know, I wish I would have been more of a workaholic or I wish I would have done, you know, I wish I would have done all these other pursuits. When you see your Savior face to face, you see him for who he is and your heart is just enraptured by him and, and what he's done for you the fact you have no business being in this kingdom but there you are and you see him free from sin with an undivided heart being able to fully engage with him in ways that because of our sin we just never do that's being filled up with the righteousness of Christ that's being remains to be filled up so to speak And how can we we mourn for our sin, see our sin for what it is, it's not just breaking a few commands, it's a wholesale coup attempt against the God of the universe. How can we then, now that he's put us into his kingdom, not have a more undivided heart where his kingdom, a vision for him, dominates us more consistently like to do is just pray for us briefly that God by his Holy Spirit would build into our lives by grace, by the power of the Holy Spirit, these kingdom realities. Mercy and an undivided heart. Let's pray. (coughs) Dear Father in Heaven, when we see what you have done for us, in your mercy. When you took us in our poverty, our poor in spirit, unable to get to you with anything that we could do, and when we realize how much mercy you poured out on us at great cost to yourself, Lord, how can we not turn around and demonstrate compassion and tangible efforts and actions to show mercy to everyone around us? Deliver us from our javert, uh, law-keeping, judgmental attitudes and actions to one another. Make us a place where the mercy of God is lived out in a deeper and deeper way. And Lord, I pray for our divided hearts, Lord. Even after all that you've done for us, Lord, we, we substitute you so often and make other things more important than anything else, Lord. But Lord, we need undivided hearts. We need to purify our hearts, Lord Jesus. Because not only do we want to see you more clearly now, but we know one day we will see you face to face. And since that is our ultimate destiny, it calls us to have undivided hearts where your kingdom, your priorities, and a vision for you grabs us, motivates us, informs us, and drives us. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.